Thank you. I'm Patty, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm grateful to be sober, and I'm particularly grateful to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank John and the committee for inviting me, and Denise for picking me up and hosting me. And um, we got to the hotel and checked in, and I went to my room to uh, hang my wrinkled clothes up. And came back down and ran into Denise again, and the first thing she said to me was that she and John had talked after I came, and uh, they both agreed that neither one of them thought I was going to be as old as I am. <laughs> and I want you to know that if I would have known I was going to be as old as I am, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> really enjoyed the honesty in northern Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, you remind me of Granny. You know, why... How come I can never remind anybody of Ellie Mae? You know, I mean, <laughs> but it's uh, it's been a it's been a great weekend so far. I've I've really enjoyed the conference. I'm really glad Peggy's here. It's a little embarrassing, however, to have her sitting up in the front row with her blanket on. Uh, Peggy's my spiritual advisor, and I'm a little questioning right now whether that's a good idea on my part or not. I don't see anybody else in this room with a blanket wrapped around them. <laughs> But I'll tell you what, Peggy's been sober longer than I have, and if it works for her, I'm going to have one of these tablecloths on at the meeting tonight. (laughs) My sponsor always tells me when I do this, it's very simple, I should just tell you my name and tell you the truth. And uh, my trial, the guy who does my travel arrangements for me is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he sent me my tickets to come here, and I didn't open them because I didn't need to until I got to the airport, and... When I got to the airport yesterday morning and I went to take my tickets out, he enclosed with my tickets a picture of himself and a little post-it note that said, tell him the truth. And and I've already told you my name, but I'm not so sure I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you my perspective of the truth. I don't know anybody about anybody in this room, but when I was out there practicing, which, which I think is a rather strange word. I don't know about anybody else, but I didn't need a lot of practice. I was pretty good right from the gate. But before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't know I was going to end up here. I didn't know I was going to end up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know it was going to be important to tell you what it used to be like. And so I didn't pay a lot of attention to my life. (laughs) I'm real anal, I'll tell you what. If I would have known I was going to end up here, I would have taken notes. Um... If I would have known that what it was like was going to be important, I would not have done some of the things that I did. But I didn't know I was going to end up here. I didn't know it was going to be important, and so I didn't pay attention. And a lot of what I share with you about what it used to be like was reported to me by other people, and I just have to assume that they told me the truth. A lot of it is documented. I can go back and look it up. In fact, um, the book says more will be revealed, and... I have a job that I had to have a fingerprint clearance for. And when they were finger... I'm really good at fingerprinting. I fingerprint well. I've done it a number of times. And when they were fingerprinting me, I was doing... You know, you roll your finger. It's a real... It's a science to it. And I was being fingerprinted. And I didn't want to raise any red flags. So I very casually said to this woman, as I was being fingerprinted, well, how far back are you going to check? And she looked me in the eye and said, from the day you were born... And I thought, well, this is kind of like a fifth step, only it's in the wrong order because they're going to know about it before I do. And when the report came back, the woman called me up and um, 
She's the normal, I don't know how many of you have normal people in your life, but they're really a strange breed of cat. I mean, I, re I think there ought to be programs for normal people because they're, they're really bizarre. My next door neighbors are normal and they baffle me. They're married, which I think is pretty strange anyway. And um, they, they share a beer. They'll open a beer. And it's not even a decent-sized beer. It's one, one of those I call a shot beer, you know, the little ones. And they'll open a beer, and one of them will have the beer, and the one who's not holding the beer doesn't seem to be concerned about the fact that they're not holding the beer. <laughs> and then one of them will take a drink of the beer, and the one who's not drinking the beer is not monitoring how much the one who is drinking is drinking. And then sometimes neither one of them is holding the beer. They put it down somewhere. And minutes go by. <laughs> Hours go by. It seems like days go by. And, and all of a sudden, one of them will say to the other, Honey, where's the beer? And the other one looks and says, Gee, I don't know. I know where the beer is. <laughs> and I live next door. And I'm... And they are, they are normal. I think there's something wrong with those people. But this woman who, who uh, called me up about my little fingerprint clearance had that normal person tone in her voice. Like, she's kind of afraid she's going to hurt your feelings, but she needs to tell you this. And she said that my report had come back, and she said, you know, normally these reports are two or three pages long. She said, yours was 56 pages. <laughs> And she asked me if I wanted to see it, and of course I did. I went running right down there, and I know more about my story today than I did before they did that fingerprint clearance. So the, the truth is, the book, you know, the book says it, more will be revealed, and it doesn't tell us how. So most of my story was, um, was reported to me in, in a similar fashion just from other people. So I'm going to try and tell you what it was like, um, what happened and what it's like today. I had my first drink of alcohol when I was 13 years old. I'm really sorry I waited that long, but I, I didn't know what alcohol would do to me or for me. I don't remember having any illusions about alcohol. I don't remember having any thoughts about I'll never drink or I can't wait until. I just don't remember ever thinking much about alcohol one way or another. And yet when I was 13 years old, I was on a camping trip with a group of girls, and we were camped at the beach in Southern California. And we went to get in the tent that night. I had a bottle of vodka in my pillowcase. And to this day, I don't know where that vodka came from. I believe it was the grace of God. But, but I can't be sure. But I remember pulling it out of the pillowcase, and I remember being excited about having it. I had no idea what alcohol would do to me or for me, but I remember being excited about having it. And I asked if anybody wanted any, and they didn't. And the reason they gave me for not wanting any of it was all we had to mix with it was grape, so grape soda and root beer. And I said, well, so what? And I took the top off, and I drank half the bottle, and uh, nothing got different, nothing had changed, so I drank the second half of the bottle, and that was to be the end of my social drinking. <laughs> Never again after that day did I ever offer anybody a drink out of my bottle. It was... And I don't know about anybody else, but I never had resentments until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I never had resentments out there, but one of my early resentments in Alcoholics Anonymous is I heard you talk about your first drink. And I heard about, I heard you talk about taking the drink and, and you felt the warmth in your mouth and you, 
as you swallowed, you felt this magic go down your throat, and, and you literally you felt it hit your stomach, and when it hit, it exploded. And it went to your fingernails and your toenails, and your pimples fell off, and you grew taller, and you lost weight, and you became Prince Charles and Lady Di, and wonderful things happened to you. And, and that wasn't my case. I drank that bottle of vodka. I sat in that tent, and absolutely nothing happened to me. Everything was exactly the same as it had been. Nothing happened to me for about 15 minutes. <laughs> and at the end of the 15 minutes, the only thing that happened to me was that I had to go to the bathroom. And it's my belief today that if you drink a quart of anything in about 15 minutes, you're going to have to go to the bathroom. And I got out of the tent. We were at the beach. I shuffled through the sand to the outhouse. I went in the outhouse and went to the bathroom. And when I got down and went to get up, I realized I was absolutely and totally 100% paralyzed to the toilet seat. I couldn't blink. I didn't feel my heart beating, and I was and I was paralyzed. And I was overcome with a sense of fear. And of course, the fear was that somebody else was going to have to come use that outhouse, and there I was, paralyzed to the toilet seat. And uh, later in my drinking, I discovered that two people can use the same toilet at the same time if the second person is very careful about what they're doing. But. <laughs> I didn't know that then, so um, what I did was I intuitively knew that the body was made up of energy, and I somehow knew that if I could gather that energy, that I would be all right. And so I guess it was my first formal meditation. I sat, and I gathered my energy. And when my energy seemed to be in one place, when it seemed to be all sort of gathered up, I just fell off the door, off the toilet, out the door, into the sand, and started crawling back to the tent. Now, since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, I've discovered that my entire problem that night was my attitude. <laughs> if my attitude would have been right, I could have had a fantasy that I was in the Marines and I was being dive-bombed as I was trying to get back to safety. And, and if my attitude would have been right, it could have been a wonderful experience. Now, in my own defense, I need to tell you that my pants were still down at my ankles. I had started to get sick. I couldn't quite get through it. I couldn't get around it. And under my, you know, in my own defense, I need to tell you it's a little difficult to have a good attitude. And I somehow managed to get back to the tent. I fell in and I passed out. And when I came to in the morning, I realized nobody was in the tent with me and I couldn't figure out where they went until my eyes cleared enough that I realized I'd been sick all night long. I hit the top of the tent, the side of the tent, the floor of the tent. I hadn't missed a square inch and quite frankly, I didn't want to be in the tent either. And so I... <laughs> I got out of there, and that was my first experience with alcohol. And it was the most incredible, marvelous, fabulous, magnificent, spiritual, monumental experience I've ever had. And it must have been because I put some amount of alcohol into my body from that day until the day I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I didn't always get drunk, and I didn't always drink the kinds of things that you would classify as a beverage. I drank a lot of mouthwash. I drank a lot of perfume. Taboo became my after-dinner drink of choice. <coughs> I still have a problem with it. If you're wearing it, I'll probably follow you too closely <laughs> and laugh at your neck. I just still... But I've often been tempted when I share at a meeting to identify and say I'm Patty and I'm a pig um, because I ate, drank, shot, snorted, shoved, crammed, rammed, anything into me that made me feel different. I went to your house and ate and drank everything in your bathroom. And I did not know that this was not normal. I didn't know that other people weren't living the way I lived. And, and how could I have known? I don't, we didn't talk about it. I became a bar drinker. 
I was a living room drinker, a bedroom drinker, an office drinker, a dumpster drinker, an alley drinker. I mean, I didn't specialize. I just drank. But one of the one of my favorite places was bars, and my favorite of favorite bars were the sleazy bars. And I, I know you don't have any in northern Kentucky, but I love the sleazy ones with sawdust on the floor. The mirrors are cracked. The the upholstery around the bar is ripped from people trying to hang on as they're falling off. They're full of smoke, and they have that used booze urine smell that I salivate still when I think of it. I love that smell. And, and in retrospect, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've looked back at those days, and it just fascinates me, the quality of people that drank in those bars. There were neurosurgeons. There were CEOs. There were presidents of big corporations. There were admirals from the Air Force. I mean, that's what they said they were. And and it just fascinates me that we all gathered there. But um, we weren't sitting in those places having conversations like, well, what's your preference, the, the red mouthwash or the green? Well, what do you prefer, aqua velva or chantilly? I mean, we weren't having those kinds of conversations, so it didn't occur to me that I was living my life any different than anybody else. If I ever thought of it, I just thought people, everybody lived the way I did. And I had an opportunity to go to college, and I did very well in college. I stayed in college and took classes for a master's degree. And, and when I finally left college, I went immediately into the profession of my choice. And because God had given me a gift, I rose very quickly to the top. All the time, a chronic, hopeless, helpless alcoholic, only I don't know it. I don't have a clue um, that alcohol had become my mother, my father, my God, my lover, my friend, my companion, my support. And at some point, and I believe it was in the middle of my first drink, but at some point it had turned, and it began to strip me of self-esteem, self-worth, integrity, decency, honesty, pride, all the things we have going for us as a human being. I don't have a clue. I think I drink because I want to drink. I don't know that I don't have a choice. I don't know that at 13 years old I put alcohol into an alcoholic body and from that day on I had no choice, that I was damned to continue to live the way I've been living day after day after day. I don't know I don't have a choice. I think I drink because I want to drink. And I rose very quickly to the top of my profession and um, I had a little driving problem. I um, I was in the newspaper business and, and if you're a writer you drink. And if you go to the bars, I mean, that's where the big stories are. That's where the leads are. That's where the movers and the shakers are. And I'd go to the bar after work, and I'd, I'd get really big leads in those places. And I'd write all these notes on those little stupid napkins. But by the next day, they'd gotten wet, and the ink had run, and I wasn't sure what the... And I'd have to just make it up then, because they couldn't quite read what was on the napkin. But, I mean, you did that. You had to do that. It was part of the job. I mean, it wasn't, the, you know, it was just part of what I needed to do. And one night I left the bar, and went home, and, and I always had bad car karma. I always bought cars that were lemons. I always bought cars that were unreliable, and I had one of those cars, and I turned onto my street, and as I turned left onto my street, my power steering went out, and I slammed into a car parked on the left-hand side of the street, and I panicked, and I turned the wheel just a little bit to get back into the middle of the street, and I hit a car on the right-hand side of the street, and, and I turned to the left, and I hit a car on the left, and I hit a car on the right, and I hit a car on the left, and I finally got to my driveway, and I stopped, and I, I just sat there in incredible gratitude for the fact that I had gotten home safely. 
And I was just sitting there being grateful. And I finally got out of the car and I went into the house. And I was in the house for a couple of minutes and the doorbell rang. I looked at my watch. It's 20 after 2. Who is coming to visit me now? And I go to the door and I open and it's the Orange County Sheriff. And he wants me to come out on the front lawn. And I'm trying to tell him about my car and how grateful I am that I got home. And I guess he wasn't very mechanical. He didn't want to look under my hood. He didn't want to check my power steering. He points down the street at all these cars. And and I'm still in my gratitude. And he wants me to get in his car. And I I don't know why, but I okay. And and I have a, I have a reputation now in Cal- Orange County because um, I've been stopped a number of times for uh drunk driving and drunk driving assault, actually, and it always had something to do with how I got out of the car. Um, I have since learned that it is not okay to try and knock the policeman's private parts off with the door when you open it. But I have a reputation as being violent, and I have a reputation as, uh, as being a fighter, so when he put me in the car, because of my reputation, he shackled my ankles. And he cuffed my arms behind my back, and we went for a ride. In California, our policemen have little metal fences between the front seat and the back seat. And I don't know why they're there, but they, they're protecting somebody from somebody. But they're little metal fences, and, and we're going for a ride. And I honestly don't know where we're going. And as we're going up the freeway, the devil flew in me. And I don't know if the devil ever flew into you, but the devil flew into me that night, and I honked up a big one, and I just spit right on the back of his head. (laughs) I guess it upset him. He sped up. I guess now he's in a hurry, and he's going faster and faster, and pretty soon he's at 100 miles an hour on the freeway. When he hit 100 miles an hour, he slammed on his brakes. And when he slammed on the brakes, because my ankles were shackled, my hands were cuffed, I went face forward into that metal grate. And I remember that night when they were taking my mug shots, they kept referring to me as Waffle Face. And, <laughs> and I never knew it had to do with alcohol. It was the cops. It was you and they and them. It was circumstances and conditions. It was my boss. It was the pressure. It was a lot of things. Never occurred to me it had anything to do with alcohol. I got to Alcoholics Anonymous as a result of what I hope is my last drunk driving assault charge. I'm one of those, I am very anal. I go to jail, I get released, I get the arrest report and I read it. I find out where I made my mistake so I can practice that part so that next time I'll get that part right. And I always knew there'd be a next time, so I had practiced field sobriety tests a lot. I am really good at field sobriety tests. And at the last one, when uh, I was taking the test, I was doing a fine job. I mean, by this time I know, finger to your nose does not mean this. That's not what they mean. And I'm doing a fine job. I'm doing a great job. And at the end of it, the officer asked me to say the ABCs backwards. And the time before I had responded with, well, I can't even do that sober. Well, then I had just confessed, and they cuffed me and took me off to jail. So on the last one, when he asked me to say the ABCs backwards, I said, okay. And I turned around, and I said, okay. See, you all think it was funny. He didn't think it was funny. I just turned around, he cuffed me, and he put me in the car, and he took me to Orange County Jail. And uh, I went to, I went to court. I was 26 years old, and I went to, I went to court on that charge, and it was my 12th drunk driving assault. I mean, I, and I drank during the time of, I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing or a right thing or a wrong thing, but 
It was the thing. Most of my most of my drunk drivings um, were during a time when you could pay an attorney a thousand bucks, and he'd go to court for you. You didn't even have to go. He'd go to court and he'd call you up or send you a letter and tell you what the deal was, and that was the end of it. And and um, I remember one time I I had two pending at the same time, and my attorney was nervous. And I think if your attorney gets nervous, you ought to get nervous. So I was nervous, and I was sitting in a bar being nervous about this two drunk drivings pending, and struck up a conversation with the guy next to me, and I came up with a plan. And I think as alcoholics, we come up with plans really quickly, and they're really good plans. And this was probably one of my best. This guy I was talking to worked at a mortuary. And we went over to the mortuary, and we got a death certificate, and we filled it out. <laughs> Put my name on the top, filled out the information, forged a doctor's signature, and sent it to the court. Because the judge cannot expect you to show up if you're dead. And I called my attorney the next day, and I told him he didn't need to worry anymore, and he didn't worry anymore, and I didn't worry anymore, and nobody was worried for about a month. And then I got picked up again for drunk driving, and (laughs) judge wanted to see me that time. And I went to court that time, and I'll never forget him looking at me and saying, Miss Ochoa, tell me, how is it a dead person is standing in my court? I shrugged my shoulders. I said, I don't know, bad luck. And... And that's what I thought it was. I always thought it was bad luck. Circumstances and conditions, you and they and them, never, 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 never occurred to me it had anything to do with alcohol. And so on this last one, those days were gone. The days of the attorney were gone. I had the public defender standing there with me. And because of my past record, I was being sentenced to 10 years in prison. And in the middle of sentencing me, the expression on the voice, on the judge's face changed and the tone of his voice got different. And he looked at me and he said, I know this won't work for you, but I'm going to offer you one more chance. And he offered me an alternative, and part of that alternative was meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I stood there for five minutes trying to make a decision. Public defender is putting his elbow in my ribs, and I'm trying to figure it out. And I finally took the alternative, and I wish I could tell you I left the courtroom. I came to A&A. I looked at the 12 steps of recovery. I knew they were the solution to the problems in my life. I worked them all in the first week and skyrocketed to recovery. Uh, but that's not my story. I drank for three more months. In retrospect, I can tell you that I drank with a sense of urgency and a desperation that I had never known. I didn't drink a greater quantity. Physically, it would have been impossible to drink a greater quantity of alcohol. But I drank with a sense of urgency and a desperation that I had never known. And on October 4, 1975, the day before I was to go back to court to tell the judge what it was I was doing with the alternative he gave me, on that day I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't know what A&A was. I thought it was something like the PTA or Parents Without Partners. And, uh, well, a lot of days it is, but. (laughs) I didn't know what you people were going to do to me or for me. As far as I know, I had never heard the words Alcoholics Anonymous. As far as I I didn't know, I did not know what an alcoholic was. I had never heard those words. And, And I came to that first meeting. It was a speaker meeting. It was a Sunday night. And I heard two things that night. I heard we, that the answers were in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So after the meeting, I stole the book. I mean, God knows I need to have the answers. And I can't tell you how upset I was when I got home. Not only could I not find the answers in that book, I couldn't even find the questions. And I thought, oh, dear God, I've stolen the wrong book. And I'm, and I'm going to have to go back and get the right one. And, um, and I'm a thief. I don't know I'm a thief. My sponsor tells me I'm a thief. I, 
I think it's really important to have a sponsor. I think it's critical to have a sponsor who is not as emotionally involved in your life as you are. Um, it irritates me sometimes, but I, but I think it's most beneficial. My sponsor has to tell me I was a thief. I don't know I'm a thief. I have a record for Grand Theft Auto. Um, I didn't know that was thieving. I would, I'd be at the bar drinking, and it'd be time to go home, and I'd pick some keys up off the bar, and I'd find the car that they fit, and I'd go home. <laughs> I don't think that's car, San Diego police think that's car thieving. My sponsor thinks it's car thieving. I think it's alternative transportation. <laughs> I have a disease that manifests itself in rationalization and justification. I can make whatever it is I do right in a heartbeat. I don't miss a heartbeat and I make it right. I think it's alternative transportation. I don't know it's cars. Even I'm a shopper. I like to shop at your house. (laughs) I come to your house and I shop. I don't know that, Stephen. I think it's shopping. My sponsor, who is not as emotionally involved in my life as I am, tells me it's Stephen. But I'm a car thief. I have a record. It is embarrassing for a thief to have stolen the wrong book. I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous to get the answer book. And I don't think it matters what brings you back. I don't think it matters if you come back as a wife or a husband or the boss. I don't think it matters what your motive for being here is. I don't think it matters what your intention is. I don't think it matters what your attitude is. I think what's important is that you don't take a drink. I don't think it matters anything else. My motive for coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous was to get the answer book, and that's what brought me back. The second thing I heard in that first meeting was that we don't drink between meetings. I quickly looked around the room, and I didn't see any of you drinking during the meeting. And I thought, if you don't drink between the meetings and you're not drinking at the meeting, when do you drink? This made me nervous. Alcohol was not a problem for me. Alcohol was a solution for me. I did not understand not drinking. It made me incredibly nervous. That the judge, and I thought the judges made a horrible mistake. I would have understood if he sent me to the Sears School of Safe Driving. I did not understand why he sent me to a place where people didn't drink. Wednesday, with four days of sobriety, I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous to get the answer book. And that meeting was a small discussion meeting. And in that meeting, I heard, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, And I looked around the room, and I looked around the room, and I looked around the room, and I could not figure out what it was you had that was so hot that I should be willing to go to any length to get it. Some of you had nice jewelry. If you stood next to me during the Lord's Prayer, if your rings were loose, they were mine. Some of you have nice cars. I know how to get those. Some of you have nice spouses. We all know how to get those. I could not figure out what it was you had, and then I saw him. And I truly believe there's a hymn for each of us. This guy was a skinny little fellow. He was bald-headed. He wore baggy pants, and they weren't popular then. And a thin belt. He had tennis shoes on with no shoelaces, but the holes were there where they should have been. And he nodded out during the meeting. And I thought, if I have to do this thing and not drink, I want to do it his way. So I found out where he worked, and the next day I snuck down to his office, and I said, Dick, I have to do this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous to stay out of jail. And I don't know how to do it. And he told me if I would go to meetings and read the book and talk to other alcoholics and not drink. So I'll guarantee you, you won't get drunk. And if you don't get drunk, your life will get different. And I'm grateful he told it to me that way. He didn't tell me my life would get better. He didn't tell me my family life would get better, my job life would get better, my relationships would get better, my finances would get better, my sex life would get better. 
He didn't tell me any of it would get better, and I'm grateful. Because none of it has. <laughs> it's a little hope for the newcomer. But it's all gotten different. And as I stand here this afternoon, I can tell you from the top of my head to the tip of my toes, I have never had it so good. You see, I don't know good from bad for me. I'm going through something I think is good for me, it generally turns out to be bad for me. If I'm going through something I think is bad for me, it generally turns out to be good for me. And I don't know good from bad for me. But I know different. I've gone through times in my sobriety where everything I have worked for has been taken away from me. I've gone through times in my sobriety where where everything that I've gotten has been ripped away and I have truly believed that God has brought me this far and has now abandoned me. And every time that that's happened, if I haven't drank and I don't die and I get far enough beyond it, I have been able to see that every time I thought my life was falling apart, what was really happening is it was falling together. And it had to be exactly that way for God to move me to where he'd have me be. But I don't know that. I don't know good from bad, but I know what different is. And every area of my life is different than it was the day I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and I have never had it so good. And and I believe that old man, and I don't know why I believed him. I hadn't believed another human being in a very long time, but but I believed him. And I already had that book, so every night I'd open it to chapter 3 and I'd read the line that says, most of us are unwilling to admit we are real alcoholics. I'd say amen and close the book. And, and that was reading the book. And I'd go down to the Canyon Club in Laguna Beach where they have AA meetings and I'd have a cup of coffee on the way out. I'd say hi, Jim, to the manager, and he'd say hi, Patty. And that was talking to another alcoholic. My court program said I had to go to two meetings a week. I thought that was a little obsessive. But I was willing to go to any lengths to stay out of jail, and that's all I wanted out of this deal. And so I went to the two meetings a week that my court program said I had to go to, and the only thing I did right is I didn't take a drink. And I didn't take a drink, and I didn't take a drink, and I didn't take a drink. And I am incredibly grateful that the people in Alcoholics Anonymous knew, understood, and lived the 12 traditions when I walked through the doors uh, because they never told me I had to leave. I was an angry woman when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. The only thing I knew when I came here was anger, and I acted it out in violence. A volcano would go off inside of me. And when that volcano went off, I had to do something. When that volcano went off, I wanted to see blood, preferably yours. Um, when that volcano went off, I absolutely had no control. And I was not a nice, loving newcomer. I was not the person you were running up to, embracing, giving your phone number, and handing out literature. You came up to try and talk to me. I'd spit at you. I'd kick at you. I'd throw my coffee at you. I'd take a swing at you. Um, the only people who were coming up to me were people whose sponsors were irritated at them. <laughs> if your sponsor was annoyed at you, he or she would point to me and say, see that woman back there? Go give her your phone number. And like a good AA, you'd write down your phone number and you'd come up to give it to me and I'd take a swing, I'd throw my coffee, I'd spit, I'd go nuts. So I'd be in the back of the room, somebody would be talking, they'd irritate me, I'd stand up and tell them exactly what I thought of it. And it was like all these four-letter words I'd string together, it sounded like a sentence, and I'd spew it out, and somebody would turn around, and it was always some little blue-haired lady, smile at me and say, keep coming back. And I'd wave my court card in her face, and I'd tell her I didn't have a choice, and I'd flip her off, and I'd sit back down until the volcano went off again. And one day I jumped a guy, he irritated me, he shared something at a meeting, say it to him, he shared it in the meeting, I took it personally irritated me. After the meeting, I jumped him and I was beating his head into the concrete floor and uh, took a number of men to get me off of him. And when I did, I knew you were going to tell me I couldn't come back. And one of those men looked at me and he said, Patty, next time that volcano goes off, he said, just put your hands in your pockets. 
and don't touch another human being. And I wondered how he knew about the volcano. Nobody had ever talked to me about the volcano before, but that was what was inside of me. And I had to walk around in Alcoholics Anonymous for a very long time with my hands in my pockets before I discovered that that anger was a cover for a tremendous amount of fear. I was absolutely scared to death. I was afraid of you, I was afraid of me, I was afraid of life, and I had survived in places where you can't survive if you're afraid. And at a young age, I began to cover that fear with anger and acted out in violence. And I had to walk around for a long time with my hands in my pockets before I discovered that for myself. And, and I wanted to drink more than I wanted to breathe. I didn't want to be here. But I, I was only here because I didn't want to go to jail. And, and um, I heard the traditions read one night. And I know they read them at every meeting, but I'd never heard them. And I heard them one night, and I heard the third tradition. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And that was it. I jumped out of my chair. I was so excited. I don't have a desire to stop drinking. I want to drink more than I want to breathe. I don't want to be here. And an old-timer, and God bless the old-timers, an old-timer grabbed me, and he took me aside. And he said, Patty, there's a judge in South Orange County Court. He has a desire for you to stop drinking. <laughs> and in your case, we're going to let that be enough. And... Um, <laughs> So I stayed on somebody else's desire. I don't think it matters whose desire you're here on. I think what's important is that you don't take a drink. I think the key is you don't take a drink. You all saw the evidence of my alcoholism when I walked in, but I couldn't see it. I have a disease that manifests itself in denial. I have a disease that manifests itself in rationalization. I have a disease that manifests itself in justification. I can't see my disease, but you all saw it when I came in. And you never told me to go away. All you ever said to me was keep coming back. And... And I came back, and I came back, and, I, and what happened to me is the pain of not drinking, coupled with the pain of not recovering, drove me one day to my knees. And on my knees, I chose to recover in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wish I could tell you then that I looked at the steps, knew they were the solution to the problems in my life, have worked them all rapidly and perfectly, and I've skyrocketed to recovery. But um, I have not worked any of the steps till my back was against the wall. The pain was so great, it was do it or die, and I had no other choice. Then I become very willing to work the next one of the 12 steps of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, um, it has been a slow journey for me. It has, been a, it has been tedious because I'm a fighter. I fight everything. I yeah, but, and I fight. Generally, I take direction when I know it won't work. And I do the thing that you suggest me to do because I know it won't work, and I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to come back and tell you that you were wrong. Um, that's generally why I take the direction that I take. I, uh, my, I think... Um, I think it was said this morning, Sally said it this morning at the Al-Anon meeting. Um, I, my disease, whenever I do battle with alcohol, you probably didn't say it this way, I'm going to really screw it up, but my powerlessness over alcohol for me is whenever I do battle with alcohol, I lose. Whenever I get into the ring with alcohol, I lose, whether I'm fighting it because I'm drinking it or I'm fighting it because you're drinking it. Whenever I do battle with alcohol, I lose. Alcohol had... And my life had become unmanageable. Alcohol controlled my life. Alcohol controlled where I would live, where I would work, the people I would run with, and, and of course, eventually the people I would run from. And alcohol controlled my life. I had no choices. I was damned to live the way I lived, day after day after day after day. And, and I justified it. I rationalized it. I made you wrong. It was never me. It was never alcohol. It was you. And, uh, and I am still powerless over alcohol. Whenever I do battle, I lose. And my, uh, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 26 years old. I have a son as a direct result of my alcoholism. I never wanted to be a mother. Found out that is not adequate birth control. My son was 11 months old 
when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I brought him with me. I love seeing children at meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I believe they had the worst of our disease, and I believe they deserve the best of our recovery, and I think it starts here. And I brought my son with me to meetings. I didn't know what to do with him. I didn't like him. He wouldn't do anything. He went and he cried. He would not go get a job. I mean, he was a, he was pitiful. And um, and I'd bring him to a meeting with me, and one of you would take him, and you'd hold him, and you'd do whatever you did with him. And I'd bring him to the next meeting. And everything my son knows, he has learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. My son learned how to be kind and loving. He learned how to be gentle. Um, you taught him that stuff. I couldn't have taught him. I didn't know. Everything my, you've also taught him how to con and manipulate, and I guess you take the good with the bad, but <laughs> my son has grown up with you, and uh, when he was, um, I don't know, he was a teenager, I don't know when it happened, because I live in the, I have blinders on, and people were telling me things like, um, you know, Patrick's looking like he's a little loaded, and um, I'm saying, no, no, he's just tired. And he's not doing well in school. Well, he's just not a student. You know, he's one of those kids, he's going to, like in his 20s, it'll click in and he'll decide to educate. And my son didn't have to justify. I was justifying for him. I was making up excuses and I was rationalizing. And I don't know I'm doing it. I don't know I'm in the ring with, with um, I don't know I'm in the ring again. And I'm justifying, I'm rationalizing my son's behavior. And I'm making everything right for him. And I don't know I'm doing it. And um, I've always been a single parent. And right before, a little before my son was 18, he came in one Friday night and the bags of his eyes were down about his knees and um, his eyes were red and I, he sort of missed the door on his first attempt to come in and I was sitting in the living room and I had been to an Al-Anon meeting and um, my son walked in the house and it says in the book, God will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. God will not do for me what I can do for myself. I'm a little irritated about that. Um, <laughs> I want to sit on my couch and have money come through the mail. God will not do that because I am able to get up and go to work. I've got, but God will do for me what I cannot do for myself. And God did that Friday night. My son came through the door and I stood up from my couch and I had no, this was not me. I stood up from the couch and I looked at my son and I said, Patrick, are you loaded? And um, I would never have asked him that. And he looked at me and he said yes. And I said to him, you have to make a choice. You can either live in my house or you can do drugs, but you can't do both. And that was God doing for me what I could not do for myself because it came out of my mouth and I would not have said that to my son. And he went in his bedroom and I sat back down on the couch and ten minutes later he walked out with a backpack over his arm. And he had made a choice. And he walked out of my house and as a mother it broke my heart. Intellectually, I understand the choice. I have made that choice over and over and over and over. I have given up everything for one more drink. Everything I have ever had, I have given up for one more drink. The only thing I wanted to be since I was in the fourth grade was a writer. It's the only thing I have ever wanted to be. And I had an opportunity to go to college, and I had an opportunity to go into that profession, and I had an opportunity to do it very well, and I gave it up for one more drink. I drank myself out of my profession of choice. I made it, I gave it up for one more drink. Everything I have ever wanted, I have given up for one more drink. I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous for a while and I'm hearing people talk about, you know, I'm 35 days sober today, I made amends to my boss and he made me CEO. Well, I just, um, you know, I just celebrated six months of sobriety, I got uh, my own uh, promotion and uh, quite frankly I took over the company. 
And I'm whining to my sponsor because I'm sober a while and I can't, still cannot work in the profession of my choice. I have made amends. They have very long memories. They don't want me. I gave it up for one more drink. And so, and I did that with everything in my life. And so intellectually, I understand that choice. But as my son walked out of the door, it broke my heart. And as a mother, I sat on my couch in a pain that I had never experienced before. I was 16 years sober, sitting on my couch in a pain that I have never experienced before, trying to decide if I should drink or kill myself. These seem like the only two options to take care of this pain. Should I drink or should I kill myself? And I sat on my couch. And for two days I sat on my couch trying to decide if I should drink or I should kill myself. My experience is that it doesn't matter what I think. My experience is it doesn't even really matter what I decide. My experience from the third step is that what's important is not what I think or what I decide. I remember I'm driving the other day and I'm supposed to be going to this A&A meeting and I get to the intersection and I have to make a decision. Am I going to go straight or am I going to turn left or am I going to turn right? I make a decision to turn right because that's where I'm supposed to go, but I don't do anything about it and I go straight. So I make a little U-turn and I come back to the same intersection. Now i got to make a decision. Do I go straight or do I turn right or do I turn left? Well, now I make a decision to turn left because that's the way I'm supposed to go. But I don't do anything about it, so I go straight. Now I make another U-turn. I get back to the same intersection. I have to make a decision. Do I go straight? Do I turn right or do I turn left? I make a decision to turn right. I take the steering wheel and I turn it and I make the turn that I made the decision. I learned that in step three. It's irrelevant what the decision is. What's important is the action I take. The decision I made in step three had very little impact on my life until I took the action of the next steps. Sitting on my couch making a decision to drink or kill myself had no impact on my life. The only thing that would have had an impact is if I would have taken an action. Two days I'm sitting on my couch. My phone rings. It's one of the women I sponsor. Whining yet another time. about him (laughs) and what he has done and how he has devastated her again. And she's whining, 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 whining. And it was 11.30 in the morning. And I said to her, meet me at the club for the noon meeting. Hung up the phone, got in my car, went to the club, sat through that meeting. And the pain didn't dissipate. The pain did not go away, but it lessened just a little bit. And what I know is that it takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to continue to choose to recover an alcoholic's anonymous. Cowards drink. I know I did that on a daily basis. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to continue to choose to recover. And I don't have that courage and I don't have that strength. But I come here with you. And at the end of the meeting, when we take hands to say the Lord's Prayer, the person on this side is going to give me a little courage. And the person on this side is going to give me a little strength. And you're going to give me exactly what I need to continue to choose to recover one more day. And the pain lessened just a little bit that afternoon. And I got enough courage and I got enough strength to continue to choose to recover just one more day. And the magic for me is that it's about what is it I can do for you? How can I be of service to you? Tell me what it is that you need from me. Let me be there for you. 
And that's what I did with that woman who was whining, and that's what I did by showing up at that meeting, and that's what I did by holding hands, and that's what I have done on a daily basis. And the pain of my son's choice is still not completely gone. But my fear and my hurt and my pain doesn't have to immobilize me anymore. And my feelings don't have to control my life. And because I have, because I'm human, I have fears, I have inadequacies, I have doubts, I have all that stuff that a human being, I didn't recover beyond that. I recovered into that. And if I don't take, if I don't like the way I live my life today, if I don't ha- take a drink, I have a choice to do it differently tomorrow. If I don't like the way I behave today, if I don't drink, I have a choice to do it differently tomorrow. If I take a drink, I'm damned to continue to live the same way day after day after day, and I have no choices. I have to tell you that my son um, was gone for a number of months. I didn't hear from him. Then um, he resurfaced, and we've had um, we've rebuilt our relationship. We have dinner together at least once a week. I have learned not to ask questions I don't want to know the answer to. Um, he moved into my driveway in his van for a few months. It's the closest... <laughs> Closest he came to living back home was in the driveway. And um, he'll be 21 years old in November, and talked to him a couple weeks ago, and he told me that um, he never finished high school, and told me that he, he thinks an education is important, and he's going to go to junior college and get a GED, and, and, um, and he's got some plans for his life. And, and the thing that I know about my son is that um, God has no grandchildren. If I am God's kid, then I have to believe that my son is God's kid and that my son has a path that he has to walk. And as he's walking that path, there's a gentle and a loving hand um, that will be there. God doesn't wait until we walk through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe God was always with me. There were a number of times that I should have been dead. God has always been very gentle and very loving with me, and I've never had a problem with God. I don't have a problem being one of God's kids. My only real problem with it is I want to be his only kid. Um, and I believe that for my son, and I believe that for me, and I believe that for you, and I believe that for everybody on the planet, that God is very gentle, and that we all have our own path to walk. And the difference between me and some other people, maybe, is that you have given me the courage and the strength to continue to live my life the way I believe God would have me live it. You have given me the courage and strength to continue to become the person that I believe God would have me be. I think, for, you know, we hear a lot of times where people say, don't leave before the miracle happens. And it's like, yeah, what does that mean? I have to do this thing Peggy does. I, I, it doesn't work as well with your hair back like this, but if I take it down and do it, I tie it not. So I just sort of, sort of a let's pretend Peggy Martin thing with my hair, but it, it helps you think better. It really does. I don't know what, what that's about, but, um, now I forgot where I was. Oh, yeah, the miracle. So what's the miracle? You know, we tell people don't leave before, the, but what's the miracle? I'll tell you what the miracle was for me. For me, the miracle, and Alcoholics Anonymous was step seven. For me, the miracle was step seven. I did my fifth step. I had, it's time to quit. I had spent my whole life building a wall to keep you out. I don't know if I don't like people. I don't think I do, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I know I have no social skills. I I have one. I used it at about 11.30. I'm fresh out now. but <laughs> I spent my whole life building walls to keep you out. And, and I think it was about my perception was that people hurt me. My perception was that you hurt me. You disappointed me. You let me down. You hurt me. 
And I just didn't want to be hurt anymore, so I built this wall to keep you out. And the wall worked really well. It kept you out. What I never knew about the wall was it made me a prisoner inside. I lived behind the wall in isolation and loneliness, and I don't think a human being can live that way very long. And that's why I think my first drink was God's grace. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, the wall was in place. It kept you out. And when I did my fifth step, and when I shared with another human being who I was, it didn't knock that wall down, but it took one brick out. And one by one, the bricks have been removed from that. I still have like a little styrofoam thing I throw up sometimes. But one big poof and it's, you know, it's gone. But I don't have that wall anymore that keeps you out. What I know today is, yes, people hurt you. Yes, people disappoint you. Yes, people let you down. But it doesn't kill me. And it doesn't immobilize me. Because I come here and get the courage and strength I need to continue to choose to recover through the hurt, through the letdown, and through the disappointment. And I went home from doing my fifth step, and I opened the book accidentally to the part where it talks about step six and seven. And I was reading it, and I kind of got lulled into it, and when I became aware of what I was reading, I was in the middle of the seven-step prayer. And when I became aware of what I was reading, I knew that I believed it. And I finished reading the prayer, and what it said in the book happened to me. I walked through the archway to freedom. I walked away from the person I had been all of my life to start to become the person God intended for me for me to be. And I believe that's the miracle. I think the miracle here is we have an opportunity to walk away from the person we've been all of our life to start to become the person God intended for us to be. And I think too many people leave before they give themselves that chance. The best I've ever described myself is I was an animal with latent human tendencies. That's what walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because the steps work and because you've been willing to share with me, I've become very kind, very loving, very gentle, very caring, very nurturing. Of course, now they're telling me it's codependency and I have to recover from it, but I love the person who I am. I love the per- And I'm the kind of person I was most afraid of. I'm the kind of person I most dislike. And I love the person. I'm tempted to write a book, Women Who Love Themselves Too Much. Um, <laughs> I love the person who I've become because you've been willing to share with me how to live life. And Alcoholics Anonymous didn't change my nature. I'm a loner by nature. My preference is to sit on my couch. I'm a loner by nature. But you give me the courage and strength I need to continue to do the things I need to do. You give me the courage and strength I need to continue to show up and to be a part of you. Left to my own devices, I sit on my couch. My own preference would be to have had a video camera come to my room and shoot me giving this talk instead of being here with you. That's my nature. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't change my nature, but it gives me what I need in order to live life to the fullest. And I come here and sit with you and you share with me how to live. And I have 22 and a half hours to live life out there. And I didn't come here for that. I just came here to stay out of jail. That's all I wanted out of this deal was to stay out of jail. And I've gotten so much more. I've heard, um, I like Peggy's analogy about the the phone pole, I, I have a similar analogy. Mine is, um, I'm a little more lazy than Peggy is. I, I look at it like going to the May Company, and I go to the May Company, and I want, want to go to the, fir- the second floor, but I go in on the first floor. And I, I'm lazy, so I go to the escalator. And I always go to the escalator that's coming down. Now, you can get from the first floor to the second floor on the down escalator, but you've got to keep moving. And that's what steps 10, 11, and 12 are. That's what recovery is for me. It keeps me moving up the down escalator. If I stop using those steps, I start going, I don't hit bottom right away, but I start going down. And everything looks the same. doesn't matter if you're at the bottom or near the top. It looks the same. 
You're just at a different place. And when I stop choosing to recover, I start going down. And eventually I'm right back to where I was when I started. So steps 10, 11, and 12 keep me moving up the down escalator. And as long as I don't take a drink, I have a choice to continue to choose to recover. As long as I don't take a drink, I have a choice to live life differently. As long as I don't take a drink, it doesn't matter my motives, my intentions, my desires, my attitude. As long as I don't take a drink. It's about what my actions are here. What is it I can do for you? How can I be of service to you? I, I have a job today that is doing something that I never wanted to do with people that I don't particularly like. Um, and I'm really, really good at what I do. I'm really good at what I do. And I never want, I would have missed it. Left to my own devices, I would have missed it because I have an idea what I should do. I know what it is that I'm trained to do. I know where it is I should work. And I'm whining about it in AA a lot. And a friend of mine asked me to do him a favor. And I have learned here that it's, what can I do for you? And this guy asked me to do him a favor, and I did it. And then he asked me to do him another favor. And he wanted me to write an adolescent drinking driver program. Well, who better for the job? Thank you very much. <laughs> and I have a job. I mean, I'm doing this as a favor to him. And then, and then he asked me to do him another favor and present it to be funded. And I like have a job, but okay, I did it for him as a favor. And then he asked me to do another favor and implement it. But I have this job, and I'm, how can I be of service? I'm not paying attention. God's opening doors. I'm not paying attention. I'm just going through them. If I'd have paid attention, I'd have, I'd have screwed it up. I'm not paying attention. My focus is on you, not about me. And God's taking care of my stuff. And I walked through those doors, and for a little over 15 and a half years, I've had the privilege of writing and implementing treatment programs. The gift that I got to be a writer, the thing that I gave up for one more drink, God gave back to me in a way that I would never have planned it for myself. God gave it back to me in a way beyond my wildest imagination. I would never have planned this for myself. And the most recent program that I've done, the one that I'm running, the, my title is Program Director. I like that title, Director. <laughs> as long as I go to work and remember that of myself I am nothing, I'm okay. But I love that word. And um, <laughs> the most recent one that I'm done, done, the one that I'm doing now is a, is a adolescent program, and I don't like kids. I just don't. They just make me nuts. And I go to work every day, and my focus is twofold. One, of myself, I am nothing. And my second purpose when I go to work is an opportunity to give back in an area that I never had a chance to experience. I never experienced adolescence. And I have an opportunity to give back in an area that I never experienced, and God's plan for me is so incredibly beyond anything that I would have planned for myself. I don't ever tell the kids that I work for, but I absolutely honor and love the fact that they have made a choice to live their life a different way. Absolutely respect and honor anybody who comes through the doors and asks for a different way to live. Those kids are the absolute joy of my life. Um, they give me the hope that I need a lot of days in order to continue to choose to do this. I, um, my life today is nothing, nothing as I would have planned it for myself. If you're new or relatively new, go home today and write down what it is you expect out of Alcoholics Anonymous and put that paper away somewhere. And next year, when you're taking a, a celebrating a year of sobriety, take the paper out and read it and find out if you'd have had it your way, you'd have shortchanged yourself. If ever once, in any area of my life, I'd have had it my way, I'd have shortchanged myself. There is a power here among us that has a plan for us 
incredibly beyond anything that we could imagine for ourselves. I, um, before I forget, the only thing you need to remember if you're new, the only thing you need to know is that everything you need to know is in the first three words on page 112 in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything you ever need to know is in the first three words of that book. Um, I want to end with the story of a man that goes to see St. Peter and he asks St. Peter to show him heaven and hell. And St. Peter takes him to a room and it says hell on the outside and they open up the door and it's a big banquet room. It's a giant banquet room. Tables and tables and tables of food. As much food as he could ever imagine, any kind of food he'd ever want. And the people in that room were starving. They were dying and they were hungry. And the reason they were hungry is they had those long wooden spoons that you cook with tied to their hand and the spoon was just a little bit too long. They couldn't quite get the food to their mouth. And so they sat amongst plenty and they were starving. And that's how I was before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was out there amongst plenty, and I was starving. And then he took him to a room marked heaven, and inside that room was the same scene. It was a banquet, tables and tables and tables of food, as much food as he could ever imagine, any kind of food he'd ever want. And the people in that room had those long spoons tied to their hands, too, and the spoons were just a little bit too long, and they couldn't quite get the food to their mouth. But they were full, and they were happy, and they were content. And the difference was is that one man was taking a spoonful of food, and he was feeding the man across the table. And he was taking a spoonful of food and feeding the person next to him, and she was feeding somebody else. And that's how Alcoholics Anonymous works for me. I, I don't have my own answers. I have to come here, and I have to let you feed me. And I have done everything wrong here. I've, I've done everything wrong here. I've slept with newcomers. I'd do it again in a minute if I had a chance, but... I mean, think about it. We tell them they're the most important person in the room, and then we ignore them for a year. You know, it's hardly fair. I have taken your inventory and broke my neck to go share it with somebody else. I'm judgmental. Um, I charged one time for a 12-step call. I, um, everybody, it was a, my mother, my mother lives in a different town, and when I visit my mother, I go to a meeting. When, if you visited my mother, you would go to a meeting and, and I got, I was at my mother's one time, and the phone rang, and it was a woman in AA, and apparently, you know, the door swings both ways. But pretty soon people get tired, I guess. I mean, nobody, everybody had 12-step this woman, and nobody wanted to go. She'd been in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out, and nobody wanted to go. And the woman called me, and I'm up for any excuse to get out of my mother's house, so I went. And we got to the house, and this woman got, if money could keep you sober, she had a huge house. It was a mansion, big old oak door about like a foot thick of oak. And we went in, and she came down a spiral staircase, just like that old Raleigh Hills commercial with the... What was her name? Loretta Young or somebody in a, in a bathrobe with wine and vomit on it. She came swirling down there and I sent the other woman into the kitchen and I looked at this woman and I told, I said, told her I understood. I said, I know the reason you can't stay sober. The reason you can't stay sober is the people in this town won't tell you the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I can't just give you the secret, but for a hundred dollars and, uh, I should have asked for more. She took a hundred dollars out of the robe, my pocket of that wine-soaked puked robe, and handed it to me. And I looked her in the eye and I told her the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous is: if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. If you don't get drunk, your life will get different. And the other woman came out of the kitchen with the coffee, and I looked at her and I said, "Well, we don't have to be here anymore." And we left. And when that woman took a cake for one year's sobriety, I gave her back her hundred dollars. And never once in that year did she ever tell anybody that I charged her for that 12-step call. 
And she is sober and a very active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, too, had the opportunity to go to the International, and, and she was an usher in the stadium. Sober, active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think it matters what we do. I think what's important is that we don't take a drink. I don't think it matters anything else. I think what's important is that we don't take a drink. Because if I don't take a drink, I have a choice to do it differently tomorrow. If I don't like the way I live today, I have a choice to do it differently tomorrow. I think it's the key. I think the key here is you don't take a drink. And you don't have to have a year, five years, or ten years to feed somebody else. You don't have to have 15, 20 years to give this thing away. If you have one day of sobriety, you have something to feed to the man or woman walking through the door. If you have one day of sobriety, you have to give something to give to the person coming in. If you have one day of sobriety, you have the courage to give me that I need to continue to choose to recover one more day. If you have one day of sobriety, you have the strength that I need to continue to choose to recover one more day. If you have one day, you have something to feed to the man or woman coming through the door. And I believe that it's our responsibility with one day to feed the person walking through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've heard it here this weekend, and I'll probably hear it again. It hasn't been necessary for me to drink. I want you to know it's been very necessary for me to drink. It's been incredibly necessary for me to drink. It has been overwhelmingly necessary for me to drink. It's been an emergency. It's been so necessary for me to drink. But because the steps work, because people like you are willing to share with me, because the traditions are strong, and because there are people who understand the traditions, as necessary as it's been for me to drink, I haven't taken a drink or used any other drug since the day I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I never planned to stay this long. Absolutely never planned to stay this long. When I was four days sober, an old man told me if I didn't drink, I wouldn't get drunk. If I didn't get drunk, my life would get different. And I always close with the same thing, and it's a line in Chapter 5. And I close with it because it's been my experience, and I pray, God, it's your experience. And it's a line in Chapter 5 that says, There is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Thank you.